my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. This is our 4th of July, right? Because of what Jesus did, we have freedom. Now, 4th of July here in the United States, absolutely, we should be so thankful to God for living here in a country. You know, it's a unique country in the history of the world to have the kind of freedoms we have and, uh, you know, the kind of government. It's just, it is a special place. Not perfect. Hear that. We're not, you know, this is not God's chosen nation. There's only one chosen nation. It's called Israel, right? And his chosen people, we've been brought in, okay? But hear this, we are in a special place, and, and we do, it's appropriate to uh, celebrate what he's done, and that's what Fourth of July is all about, and that'll be fun. Um, so please come tomorrow. I, I can't tell you how much fun it is just to hang out. We don't have really any timelines, we're just, just there to chat and eat and, you know, tease people. I mean, uh, just... You know, it's a lot of fun, so please think about coming. But here's the deal. It ends around 9.15-ish, right, with the fireworks are all done. It's amazing fireworks. But it takes a long time to get home, unless you're the psyches. He climbs the fence. Yeah. I, or the ballerinas, you guys, it's kind of a walk for you guys. But still, the point is, is that it's so fun, so please come. Um, so, yeah. Oh, Later, we don't even, because I park way up here so we can unload the stuff, so we didn't get, we don't usually get home until 11.30, but it's, it's so fun. And also to youth, there's only one family here, uh, then I'll just save it for the email. Oh, that's right, the strategies. We have an event Saturday, don't forget. Talk about that later. That's the bike ride in Ventura, yeah, in and out and all that kind of stuff, so there. I was looking around, I'll, I'll do that via email. Okay, so let's get into the word. One of the... One of the things, the benefits of going through Scripture is that you hit whatever God wants you to hit when He wants you to hit it. And right now, we are in a very controversial passage in today's world in, in America. And, uh, and quite frankly, in many churches, this is controversial. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll hop right into Matthew 19. God, thank you for uh, what we've already enjoyed this morning Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of music, of singing, and what it does to, to uh, really focus our attention, to draw ourselves into a, a, a place of, of worship. Um, worship is obedience. It's something we do every day, but Lord, there's a special place that we have music when we sing together as your people. So I thank you for that, God. I thank you for the songs that we sang. And Lord, as we continue now our act of worship, as we open your word, this is... Uh, this is important for us, God, to, to know what you say about life, to put your glasses on. You're the only one that matters, Lord, and your word has made certain things very clear. So, God, we want to be people who are, are known as uh, people who follow you, who obey you, who love you, who worship you. And, Lord, as we open your word, that we'd be people who submit to your word and your ways, because your ways are best. And so, God, we thank you for our time now, and uh, yeah, pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in Matthew 19, we're still in the section where he's talking about what, is, what does it look like, this community that's going to be left behind after he leaves. He's preparing the disciples for his departure. They're, they don't quite get that part yet, but here's the community. They'll remember later, and these are important things that we're hitting on, and this passage especially in today's world in our culture here, and in the culture of the church, this is a very important passage, all right? I will not be able to say everything there is to say about it, because there's books written on this, but I, I want us to get the, the principles down, and then ask us some important questions about our heart, okay? Let me read. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, which was in the north, and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So he's going south, but he's on the eastern side of the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, much to the dismay of the religious leaders. After trying to discredit him, they still saw that he was something special, these crowds. They followed him, and he healed them there. He continued his ministry, his power on display. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. By asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Ooh, 
Yep, we're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's a big issue. Have you not, and then Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's controversial. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to, glue to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, the follow-up question here, continuing to test him. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Here's Jesus' response. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs. What? Eunuchs? We'll get to that. Okay, this passage, this part here, is, it's a change in topic, but not really. But there are, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Jesus' view on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, even the fact that there's only two genders, male and female, and that marriage is for a male and a female alone, is revolutionary. And quite frankly, at his time, it was, it was somewhat revolutionary too, not on the same, to the same degree it is now, but it was then. It was controversial. It was upsetting then and especially now. But here's the question. Is this, are these the words of some religious hierarchy? Who is the, who, whose words are these? It's Jesus. So the question is, all of us who've been raised in this culture and breathe the air of this culture, the question is, ultimately, as we walk, we'll walk through this passage, the question as we start, though, is Jesus really king? Is he really the one who's king of your life and you will submit to what he says, not what our culture says? No matter what studies there are and all that kind of stuff, the question is, will we let God be God, the one who designed all of creation, who knows what's best, and then has clearly revealed it? And these aren't just some writings of somebody else, somebody. This is Jesus saying these things. So, before we even walk into this, the question is, is, where is your heart in regards to the Word? Where's my heart? Because quite frankly, this is very controversial, and I have friends, guys I surf with or whatever, who don't agree with me on this and don't like me for believing this. So the question I have to ask is, Chris Brunzeel, do I want to be liked, or do I want to glorify Jesus Christ? Right? Okay, and that's not to say, hey, have a fighting attitude and be argumentative. That's not, that's not what this is about. The about is, is there a settledness in your heart about what you're going to do with God's Word? Because it's very clear, <laughs> okay? We're going to walk through some of the nuances because there are things to think through, and there's all sorts of cases. Please hear that. I, again, I'm not going to be able to say everything. Hopefully, I'll give you some principles here that'll help think this through. But we have to start there. Is, are we going to let God's Word rule our lives or are we going to let man in his wisdom, right? Okay, so all that being said, let's move through this here. God's ways, and you guys need to hear this, God's ways are best. God's ways are best. He didn't establish standards so that he could ruin our lives. Divorce destroys. This is, this is a study from almost 20 years ago now. Each year, over one million American children suffer the divorce of their parents. Moreover, half of the children born this year 
to parents who are married will see their parents divorce before they turn 18. Mounting evidence in social science journals demonstrates that the devastating physical, emotional, and financial effects that divorce is having on these children will last well into adulthood and affect future generations. And there's, I could list off all the things that this study show of what happens to children. The divorce of parents, even if it is amicable, even if it's friendly, tears apart the fundamental unit of American society. I'd say the fundamental unit of every society. But what about the church? Are we providing a contrast? What sort of evidence that Jesus makes a difference? Is there any? Well, there were some studies that came out around the late 90s that said, oh, the divorce rate in the church is the same as the world. I was like, what? And so they started looking at, oh, bless you, bless you. They started looking at these studies to say when someone said they were a Christian and the, and the evidence was, or basically the question is, well, do you believe in God? And did you agree that Jesus existed? <laughs> it was pretty low standard. But when they started talking to people and, 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 and asking them, okay, so if you say you're a Christian, you know, they asked more about their beliefs. And then they, one of the key signs was how often do you go to church? Because if you, if you go to church once a week, you know, twice a month kind of thing, eh, the stats are a little bit higher, but here's the deal. When people will show that they are going to church twice a week, they're going to church on Sunday, but they're involved in like a Bible study, small group, guess what happened to the stats? Radically different from the world. Again, there's all these studies, and this is just one of them. Couples who regularly practice any combination of serious religious behaviors and attitudes, i.e. attending church nearly every week and read their Bibles and spiritual materials regularly, pray privately and together, generally take their faith seriously, living not as perfect individuals or as perfect disciples, but serious disciples. They enjoy a significantly lower divorce rates than mere church members, the general public, and unbelievers. The percentage was like, uh, what is the percentage? 35% less likely to divorce. That's pretty good. There's something about this Jesus and this whole God thing, right? And that's why I keep telling people, look, living as a Christian may not be easy, is it, it's, we have to fight our flesh and the world, right, and Satan. But I'm telling you, God's ways are best. They always are. The divorce rates of Christian believers are not identical to the general population, not even close. Being a committed, faithful believer makes a measurable difference in marriage. And that is the bottom line. Why say all that? Well, this community left behind Christ, the one he's preparing his disciples to lead, teach, and shepherd, should be characterized by a commitment to love each other through thick and thin. Indeed, if the church were to practice the type of forgiveness that we just talked about, Steve, last week, isn't it funny? We're talking about forgiveness, and then the next topic that comes up is marriage. We've been talking about what is it like to live as sons and daughters of the king. That's how this whole section started off. There was a contest among the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? They're jockeying for position. And he starts talking about humility, how to care for younger believers, the kind of care that should characterize the body of Christ. And then he goes to forgiveness because, boy, that's got to be. After you go, if you go through church discipline and somebody, you know, they're caught in sin and then they repent, well, they need to be forgiven and brought in. And then he goes to this big deal about forgiveness. That was last week. And then this week he talks about marriage. Because if you don't have forgiveness in marriage, you will not have a marriage for long, Right? Any relationship, if there's not forgiveness, your relationship won't last because there's two sinners trying to be in relationship, and one of you is going to sin, and that's going to happen, right? Okay, <laughs> right? Some of you are just looking at me. Well, come on. <laughs> Honey, evidently they have different marriages than we do. Oh, she's gone. She's stepped out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but let's look at what Jesus says about marriage and then therefore just be challenged to go against our culture so that we can shine. 
Again, you guys understand, the world needs to see a difference. They need to see that we are truly changed. Because 1 Peter says, hey, are you ready to give an answer for the hope you have when you're asked? But here's the deal. Do they see hope? Right? Now, here's the deal. Yes, there is a difference. And yes, there, there there are good examples, but I think we need to do a better job overall, right? So let's look at God's design for marriage. First of all, the first section, the first six verses. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he had just talked to the disciples, and now he's on the move again. It's a march down, you know, towards Jerusalem. He goes from Galilee in the north. Let's see. I go this. Okay. He goes, then he goes inland a little bit. Okay. And what's significant, because remember, we talk about how Matthew has a theme. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's compared to a certain key leader. He's, called the son of da- he's been called the son of David, but there's another key leader I keep bringing up. Another key leader, he keeps doing things that remind the people of him. Who is it? Moses. Moses, who led the first exodus out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, all the way through the wilderness, and then he came to the edge of the promised land. You understand, in the mind of the, of the Jews, exodus was not just the ten plagues and then the crossing of the Red Sea. That wasn't the whole 40 years is the exodus event. So we spent a couple years ago, we went through Genesis up to Exodus 12 because that lays so much of the foundation of the New Testament. To understand that's the mentality. We celebrate communion. What does that come from? The Exodus, the night of Passover. Jesus is called the what of God? The Lamb of God, Passover. All right? So there's all these things that are brought up constantly. And, And Jesus going over to that region would remind them once again of the Messiah. Because here's the deal. In Jewish eschatological thought, end times kind of thinking, they were expecting the Messiah to come and lead a second exodus. Jesus, when he, he uh, taught the Beatitudes, what, part of ser- this, what sermon was that a part of? Sermon on the Mount. He went up on the Mount, started to teach. He's on a mountainside. Who's that remind them of? Moses. He went on a couple mountains, Mount Sinai, he was on Mount Nebo. Each time he's teaching the people, leading the people. Again, that's just one example of many. Jesus goes to that region, now he's going to keep teaching. And in the midst of all of his teaching, his disciples, we have a confrontation. That becomes the stage. Pharisees, who were they? The legal experts, okay? The self-righteous ones, all right? And they're ticked that the crowds are still following. Huge crowds, and Jesus is continuing to minister to these you know, scattered sheep, showing his healing power, fulfilling parts of Isaiah 60. And so they come to confront him. This isn't just a mere, oh, we want to see if you're... They, this, the, the picture is that they want to undermine his, his authority, his, any kind of credibility he has. And that's where they start talking about divorce. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him, saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, here's what you need to know. Pharisees, they had two big schools of thought, Hillel, Shammai. Shammai was more conservative, closer to what Jesus is going to bring up here. But Hillel, the school of Hillel, Hillel was a rabbi and he had a school, he was really famous. Their thing, or his teaching was like, hey, a man could divorce his wife for any reason if she's not, you know, cooking well. One of these Guys in the school, Rabbi Akiba said, if she burns his toast or, oh, not that that was a different guy, but Akiba says, if he sees another uh, lady who's better looking. That was the attitude. Matter of fact, one historian, uh, you know, that that the Pharisees and their marriages was like a scandal in Israel. They were divorcing and remarrying a lot. The self righteous, legalistic guys, and they couldn't even stay committed to their wives. Hmm. But that's, that's the issue here. He, they want to see how he handles this, this whole issue. They tested him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? But Jesus doesn't talk about the issue of divorce right away. What does he do? He goes to the issue of marriage. And what is God's design for marriage? Because that's the foundation. Go to God's word and say, originally, this is what it's supposed to be, uh, be about here. Have you not read? Isn't that kind of a slap in their face? Have you not read? He's talking about the Pharisees. 
many of these guys had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he goes right to Genesis chapter 1. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Only two genders, folks. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's out of Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He goes right. First of all, we see that he has a high view of Scripture. Okay? He, he isn't just saying, well, some of these ideas, you know, God's ideas are back there at the beginning of the, of, the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes it and says, this is what God's Word is. There's, there's many in the church today that say uh, Genesis 1 through 6, or maybe 1 through 9, or maybe 1 through 11 are all kind of ideas, mostly myth, symbolic. They don't believe in the literal truth of Genesis 1, on, uh, the very first part. But Jesus right here goes really clearly, says there was an original pair at the very beginning. He treats it as literal historical truth. He says male and female. He talks about marriage, going to the creation account. And by the way, where was sin in this? Any sin? No. Marriage was God's design before sin. The only thing that was bad about creation week was what marriage solved. What was the bad thing about creation week? It was not good that man was alone. God said that. The first time in creation week, he says it's not good. Man's incomplete. He needs a completer, someone who matches him. And that's why when God said that, then he had Adam. What did he do first? He named all the animals. And then at the end of the deal, he says, there was no helper suitable. He recognized, yeah, that, those don't match me. Those are animals, right? And then we have God saying, yeah, you're right. So let's take care of that problem. Cause him to fall asleep, takes one of his ribs. Fa- the word's fashioned, by the way. He created and made man, but it says he fashioned woman. It's a different word. Isn't that cool? And then wakes up Adam, and then it says he presents. It says that he brought the woman to the man. That's where we get the whole, I know some of you have heard this before, but that's where we get the idea of the handing off of the bride by the father. Because that's what happened in Genesis 2. It was a wedding ceremony. And so here it comes, and then here's what Adam says. Finally, at last! The Hebrews written such in that way. Someone who is comparable to me, and God blesses it, says, hey, leave mommy and daddy, boy. Grow up, be a man, and you've got a new unit here. It's, you're no longer children of mom and dad. You're still children, but your new responsibilities to each other. It's a one fleshness. A one fleshness. That word cleave, and I said that when I was reading it, it's that picture of gluing together. It's like a picture of two two by fours. I have I did do work construction at one point when I was in seminary. <laughs> I learned real quick I needed to stay in seminary because it wasn't good. But when two two pieces of wood are put together like this and then they're glued, and then you try to break it, what happens to the break? Is it a clean break? That's no, all over the place, right? That's the picture of what divorce does. It rips, tears, and demolishes. There's no, there's no clean, such thing as a clean break in divorce. Okay, I know that's a side note, but let's just keep moving. But, but in this we see him, when he goes back to the, to the Genesis 1, he is quoting from the foundational scriptures. And from this we see, we, got, we, have, we, have, uh, we see what God's design for marriage is. Marriage, first of all, it's, it's perfection. It's God's perfect plan. It's his perfect design. It's male and female. It's a completion. It's a unity. Before God. And now, in the marriage ceremony, we, we, we ask, I, when I do weddings, I get to ask this. When I had my own marriage, I, we were asked questions. And it, it's, it's, it's a covenant, right? And we sound like it, it's not a contract because contract has what? Escape clauses, right? It's a covenant made, but here's the deal. Jesus says when you make that covenant, it's not you really joining together. It's not the government joining you together. Who's joined you together? God has. Now, 
Those of you who've had divorce, for, we'll get to some of the different reasons divorce can happen, and we'll talk about that, but please know we've got to start here, okay? I've had conversations with some of you, and boy, there's some hurt, and please hear that. This is not to condemn. Let's go through this all that Jesus says here to get a clear understanding, and then we can talk about individual cases, all right? We won't get to them all, but that's, we have to start here to get the, the foundation right. It's God's perfect design. I'll look at this. My notes are a little more scrambled. It's his present. It says that he presented the, the woman to the man. The picture is it's a gift of grace. It's, it's a beautiful thing. The father bringing the woman, presenting her to Adam. And it's his plan. Here's the deal. When he set up creation and man is the apex of creation... Then he said, hey, we, not, we need to create this, this new thing, the thing that's going to be the head of creation. And what was it? It was male and female, them together. All right? What we have in Genesis 1 is a summary of, Genesis, of, the, of the creation week. But then in Genesis 2, we have a snapshot of day 6. It, it goes back to give more details of what happened on day 6. The creation of the animals, creation of Adam, him not, real, him not having a suitable helper. He names the animals, which is a king act, by the way. And then the creation of the woman. And together, now we jump back to Genesis 1.26. This pair, he says, are made in the image and likeness. It's not man only. It's both made in the image and likeness of God. And he told the young pair what? Okay, be fruitful and multiply is actually not the first thing he said. He says, have dominion. The whole point was that they were supposed to be his under rulers for this world, this creation he just made. Not that they're little gods, but literally he, he says, I'm stewarding you the rule of this world. There's no sin yet. You're supposed to maintain it and fill it with more offspring. But the first thing he did at, the, at creation before it was all done is he created marriage. He, that was supposed to be the foundation of society. That's his design. It's his perfect plan. But here's the deal. Marriage was created to do something. It wasn't an end in itself. It was a ministry. The two together would accomplish his plans. What? Ruling the earth, maintaining it, and filling the earth. It was a minister. There's a ministry aspect to it. To what? To the glory of God. Okay, next slide. Marriage is supposed to be permanent. I don't have to show you much out of the scripture except to say it was meant to be permanent. What God has joined, what? Let no man separate. Okay? It was meant to be permanent. And I talked about this a second ago. It's a new priority. This new family is a, a new unit and new priorities that, that overtake all other. So parents, if you're meddling a lot in your kids' lives that are married, stay out. Do the best thing you can. Pray for them, love them. If they ask for advice, absolutely. Help take care of the kids and stuff, but do not meddle. Let them be their unit, right? Okay, I, I don't know if any of you are meddling. I'm just saying that out loud. <laughs> But that's what, that's, I've seen that. I've had to do counseling where parents got too involved in their kid's life, this new couple, and it was bad for the marriage. Very bad. Taking sides and disagreements. Boy, if they're having arguments, stay out. Let them work it out. They have to grow up in that way. If they want you to get involved just for advice, yeah, but here's the deal. Mom, never take your daughter's side. Dad, never take your son's side. You should be getting in their face because you know how much of a sinner they are, right? You raised them, and they're just like you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I better stay focused here. <laughs> but you get that. But here's the deal. Also in this is marriage is the place for and the practice of sexual intimacy. That's what one fleshness is all about. See, here's the deal. She was taken out Eve, when she was created, a rib was taken out. Literally, that's what God hit, and he decided to do surgery. But it was, they were one flesh, but sex is the, is the reenactment of that one fleshness, and it's proper and it's good. And I say this, there's no sin yet, and yet that was part of it. Proverbs 5, 15 and on is very clear, enjoy sex. 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know what? You need to have regular, consistent sex in your marriage. 
If I find out in counseling they've had sex for months, I will make that their homework. Seriously. Because they're sinning if they're not having sex. Now, you might have physical, there might be physical issues, that's another thing. But if there is a, a determination by one or both to not have sex with each other because they're mad, they're sinning and making it worse. And I'm not trying to be crass, but let's just say what it's supposed to say. There's a whole book devoted to sexual love between a husband and a wife. Song of Solomon. It's not about the church in Christ, okay? That's really a book. Jewish men weren't allowed to read it if they weren't married or until they were 30, okay? Because it really is. God created, and it's good, and it's right, but the only place for sexual relations is in marriage. Not before marriage, not with other spouse people. It's only in marriage, okay? Clear? That sounds controversial, doesn't it? In today's culture... But that's what the Bible says. That's God's design because His is best. Matter of fact, they did, I didn't put the study on my notes here, but I did this once. The best sex in the United States, this is done by a secular, Johnson & Johnson did a survey, best sex, married couples who've been married over 20 years, monogamous, Christians. Best sex in the United States. Worst sex, singles ages 18 to 25 who are doing one-night stands. Worst sex, they, they, that's them answering their own surveys. How would, how would you rate all this? The worst sex. Isn't that funny what the world has done? The media, everything's the other way around. No, it's not. Next slide. Oh, I duplicated slides. Oh, here we go. That's, that's what I want to get to. All right. So here's the deal. God designed it. God values it. He's the first thing he set up for man is marriage because he values it so must we. We can't compromise on marriage. But Jesus also valued it. Look what he's teaching here. And then here's the deal. Where was his first miracle, the first sign miracle? The wedding. And by the way, if you read John, John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through that miracle, if you count the days, remember, you're supposed to pay attention. On the first, it says, John the Baptist did this, and this is then the next day, and then the next day, and then it says, and then three days later. We're supposed to pay attention to those details. The wedding was on the seventh day in that series there. The wedding. Jesus values marriage. Again, we're called the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. It's an example of what is supposed to happen. Okay, so there you go. I hit that hard, but that's, again, that goes against our culture, so we have to take time to just say it. But look at what they said to him. They followed up. They had a follow-up question here. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Here we see in this section man's devaluation and destruction of marriage. Moses did not command divorce. It comes from, they're, they're referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. <laughs> they were hoping to catch him. Oh, but why did Moses say, right? Command to give one a certificate of divorce and send her away. Really? They were putting the emphasis on the wrong part. The command was not to divorce, but to protect the woman in case of a divorce. Back then, who could sue for divorce only? Men. Done. I'm out. Seriously. It was wrong. But the certificate was there to show, hey, I'm not the only bad person in this. The man, it was a way of man taking responsibility. His name was on that. He was marked also. Okay? And it was not commanded. It was permitted. If you notice, it's in Deuteronomy 24, I'll just read it to you. It's in a series of ifs. God recognizing that man is sinful, and sometimes it does happen. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, is there a command right there? It's, in a, it's part of an if statement. And puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her away out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. 
after she has been defiled. For it is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring the sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. This passage that they're using to basically say you know, the divorce is okay and you have the certificate, that makes it okay. It's a passage that has nothing to do with saying that divorce is okay. It was point was that if there was a divorce and a remarriage, after the, if that ha- divorce happens again to that person, they can't go back and remarry the former person. That's what the passage is about because he's trying, he, he's trying to set up a society, these Jews, that they wouldn't have musical chair marriages where divorce is easy and they're remarried and all that. That was just like the world. Just like us. No fault divorce. It's getting easier all the time. Right? And, and folks, we, we have to realize that, that that's what Jesus is saying is we have to hear this clearly. God's design is radically different than what our world is telling us. They were looking for loopholes just like we do. Whatever displeased the man, oh my goodness, some of the things are so silly when you read about what they would come up with. They, but again, and there's this question here, they were trying to show that Jesus was at odds with Moses, trying to discredit him. But then Jesus answered them. We see his call to value marriage. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's an allowing thing here. And by the way, both sides of the debate, these two schools, they would, they would say that if there's been adultery, you're commanded to divorce. Jesus isn't saying you're commanded to divorce. And we'll talk about that in a second. There is another way, even after adultery. Don't rush to divorce. Actually, I think I have slides on this, right? Go to the next slide. Oh, by the way, go back, sorry. Malachi 3, it's Malachi 2.16. I just did 3.16, John 3.16, sorry. Okay, next slide. Biblically, divorce is not required. If there's been adultery in a marriage, but even if you're considering divorce, hear this. Seek counsel from where? The church. Because I'm smarter? Please say no. I'm not. Talk to you. (laughs) Here's the deal. God set up his church, and he said in in the church you're supposed to appoint what in every town? Titus? Elders, leadership, church leadership. Mature, godly leaders, and together there's a council, not one man, but a council group for group wisdom, group godliness, and then we're supposed to shepherd you through it. Not because we're perfect, but that's how God has set up his church. Marriage, the husband's supposed to lead, the wife's supposed to submit. Because the husband's perfect, men are perfect, and women aren't. Say no. But it's just God's design. It's a leadership issue. It's not a value issue. In the church, I'm not more important than you are. Sam's not more important, or Patrick, or Scott. We're not. We just get to do this. This is what God has called us to do during this time. Seek the church. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, but one part says, stir each other to what? Love and good deeds. It's right after it says, don't forsake the assembling of the saints. Go to church because that's where you can help each other stand fast in the faith, faith and help each other pursue Jesus together. Over the long haul, watching each other turn gray. That's good. And watch the new kids. You know, little YY over here helping with offering. I love that. See the kids run around. Well, that's the next generation. They'll be gray one day too. But may they grow up in a church where they see the church practicing God's ways, so that they're ready to do the same, right? Seek godly counsel. Seek guidance. Don't rush to divorce. Our God can redeem. Really? Really? How about in your own life? Can He redeem a marriage that's been hurt? Yes. Remember that passage we looked at last week? What was that about again? What was that about again? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. He can redeem, restore relationships, reconcile marriages in His power. Remember, 
The guy who, who we're asking to be involved in all this, he created the universe, right? Do you think he can repair your marriage? Yeah. What gets in the way? We do, right? By his grace, walking in his forgiveness and mercy, okay? God's, Christ's call because of your hardness of hearts. Call it what it is. It's us that gets in the way. And God does hate divorce, Malachi 2.16. says, I hate divorce, God says. What he hates, we probably should take notice of, right? Because you know why he hates it? Because it destroys the couple that divorces. If there's kids involved, it absolutely destroys them. If there's two families involved, which there are, mom and dad of both spouses and relatives who came to the wedding have intermingled because of the relationships, they get destroyed. Now, when I say destroyed, I don't mean like they go die, but it, it ruins. And oh, by the way, it ruins the church when divorce happens. It hurts the church. Think about the kids who grow up in the church and hear about a divorce within the church. It hurts our testimony to them, and it ruins our testimony to the world because we show that we can't practice forgiveness, okay? Again, I know that there's other things, but please, I'm talking about generalities here, but here's this too. It hurts the glory of God. That's the worst part of it. God is glorious, but we make Him look bad. May we glorify God in how we forgive each other and in our commitment to marriage. Where am I? Let's talk about what uh, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. But what, what, was the, what was the except clause there? Except for sexual immorality, okay? So let's talk about, is there such thing as a biblical divorce and remarriage, okay? Because there are biblical, where you can get biblically divorced and you can remarry biblically, okay? So first of all, in the case of adultery, that word sexual immorality, it's called the exception clause, it's talking about sexual intercourse, mainly, okay? It breaks the vows. The oneness with another violates the original covenant. Divorce isn't commanded, but it is permitted. Don't rush to take action. And that word is porneia, where we get pornography from. But that word is, is, has been translated a number of different ways, but should be taken as referring to, to adultery or related sexual sins, like Incest, homosexuality, prostitution, it, there's others too. I don't want to go down the list. But it's, it's involving sexual intercourse. I, I'm not trying to be gross, but we have to call it that, okay? But there is another reason. So if there's, if there's sexual morality, that's a biblical reason. But there's another one for a biblical remarriage after an original marriage. Well, and this one's obvious. If you've been widowed, you can get remarried. There are some people who teach that, hey, once you've been married, even if the spouse dies, you can't remarry. No, you can't. And it, but it says there's a qualification. Do I put it up there? <laughs> I underlined it, right? You can only marry a believer. That's what God said, not me. Not me trying to be ultra-religious and making sure. That's what Jesus says. I'm not going to mess. <laughs> and I don't think you should either. <laughs> or there's another reason you have a biblical divorce and remarriage. If an unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, and that, that wants a divorce, there could be several ways for that to be seen. But if they want out of the marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, 15 says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. You're to let them go. Doesn't that sound weird? That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 7. If an unbelieving partner wants out of the marriage, you are to let them go. All right? There's all sorts of, of nuances with that, of how that plays out. We, I don't want to go down that road. What if they, they leave, the, leave the home, but they don't want to pursue the divorce? They don't want to pay the money. They don't want to be seen by their religious families, the one who pursued the divorce, so they never do anything about it. Well, we've, I've actually, as an elder board, we've helped, not at this church, another one, where that, we, we counted that person because they had left the marriage. We said that was an unbeliever. And we said, well, no, they actually want a divorce even though they won't take that the legal step because we will, we will back you. You can have a biblical divorce with them. Does it make sense? You guys know what I'm talking about? 
There's all sorts of ways people try to get around this, and there are, are ways to work through this. But what does God hate? Divorce. It's supposed to be the last option. But if an unbelieving spouse wants out, you're supposed to let them go. The, the word says they're no longer bound in this passage. Bound to what? The covenant of marriage. So they're freed. But if they choose to remarry, only in the Lord, only a believer, okay? But here's the deal. Jesus answering this way, he squashed their loopholes. He's making it very clear. What about abuse? I think I have this up here, right? Go to the next. Oh, actually, okay, next one. Adultery. I have no... There we go. What about abuse and abandonment? Let me just talk about this real quick. Just so you know, we, in biblical counseling and in the church, we talk about this and we have things to go through. Abuse, if it's physical. First of all, if it's physical abuse, get the authorities involved. If you're getting hit, I joke, Renee beats me. No, she doesn't. I'm just kidding about that. But if there's abuse in the home, Say something, and we got to get the authorities involved. There's laws to protect. We're supposed to be living that way. You, the, the authorities exist to protect the innocent. And we've helped people do this where we protected the family. We, got, we literally got, got the police on the person. We had to find a, a house for this lady to move to for protection, for separation, to find out what's going on. And the church gets involved. Investigation, what's going on here? Let the, let the police do their part. But if the person is unrepentant of the sin, Matthew 18 kicks in. We bring Matthew 18 to this marriage and to this situation. And if they are continuing in unrepentance, what what do we do at the end of of Matthew 18, uh, verse 20, verses 18 through 20? They're considered an unbeliever, okay? And if they continue in unrepentance, we start treating them like 1 Corinthians 7. They're an unbelieving spouse who, by their actions, are wanting to be out of the marriage because they're beating and hurting the person. We do this process slowly, but we would treat that as a Matthew 18 situation so that person who's been being beat, the victim, can get a divorce, a biblical divorce, and can remarry biblically. Okay, again, this is... There's all sorts of things you have to find out first, but I want you to know that there's things that we walk through. We do care about physical abuse. Get the authorities involved and do not hide it. Emotional abuse, what about that? Guys, that's a really hard one. You get in a big big argument, you say some hard things, they say some hard things, then someone says, well, they're emotionally abusing me. Well, that needs a lot of investigation, but in the end, most of the time, I don't know if the Bible would give you grounds for that. First Peter chapter 3. He's talking to unbelieving or to wives who are married to unbelievers. Again, back then, marriages were tough. Okay? And women didn't have rights. And what does Peter say to these Christian women who are married to unbelievers, those who are disobedient to the word? He says, through your quiet and Gentle spirit, not your words going after them. Your example, submit to them. Again, I'm not talking about physical, we're talking about emotional, what might be called emotional abuse, okay? It says that we're supposed to, we, there's certain part of being, it's rough. Marriage is tough, right? But we have to be very careful when we start hearing emotional abuse, especially in our society, my goodness. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, the way that things have planned out here in the last 20 years has been crazy. They need safe places for people. If they hear about a political argument they don't like, you guys, marriage is for, is take some serious, tough work, right? Have you been married for more than, oh, a year? <laughs> a week? We've been married 25 years, and there's been some hard stuff. I mean, a lot of great stuff, but we're sinners. Marriage is for those who are determined It's not for the faint heart. Abandonment. What if someone abandons the family, just takes off? They don't want to pursue divorce. They're just out. We can't tell if they're having an affair or not. Well, again, we we practice Matthew 18, and we may determine 
because of their unrepentedness towards returning because of a man, well, I'll just use man and woman, man leaves and we, you know, he just refuses to come back, says, oh, she's all this, and we do the investigation and, and he's unrepentant, he's not coming back, he's not taking care of his family. If he's not taking care of his family, he's worse than infidel. He's not doing, so he's in sin. And if he refuses to repent, again, this doesn't happen in two weeks, this happens after time and all that, we might treat him as an unbeliever and then tell the believing spouse, the victim here, you can have a biblical divorce and remarriage. And we did that, I won't say the name, but I've done that in the last 10 years. So abandonment, okay? But some of these words are used in our culture to absolutely <laughs> give people rights to uh, divorce when they do not. Because what does God hate? Divorce. Now there's things, again, there's things that we need. Now if you've been divorced and you remarried, you had an unbiblical divorce and you remarried, what is that called? Adultery. But are you in a continuing state of adultery? No. Your marriage is a marriage. You sinned at the beginning, but can you be forgiven? Absolutely. But Jesus says it that it was, okay, please, I'm not trying to point any fingers, we just got to say it out loud what it is because it's true, okay? But hear this clearly, there's forgiveness, and you don't wear the letter A the rest of your life, okay? It says the second marriage is a marriage, he calls it, and marries another, he calls it a marriage, but it began in sin. It's not a good place to start, but it's a marriage. You've got some repenting to do of the choices you made, but can you still walk in, in forgiveness and righteousness from that point? Yeah, absolutely. Okay? I know, there's, we, I know there's a tons of stories about your past, but please hear that. Let's just see what Jesus says to say, okay? And then we can go from there. If you have questions, by the way, after this and you want to talk to me about it, absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. Let's talk about it. All right? Um, but by the way... <laughs> This is revolutionary, isn't it? Compared to our culture today, this is hard stuff. The disciples saw that too. The disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They, they overreacted. But notice that they've been enculturated too by their culture. The Pharisees, again, were, were known for being divorced and being remarried and divorcing. and remarried. That was the scandal of the time. They, that's who were their religious leaders. That's the culture these, even the disciples were raised in. And they recognized that what Jesus was saying was hard. It is. Who said the Christian life is easy? I, please, I hope you don't hear that from me. I know it's hard. But is it right? And is it good? And is it life-giving? And do you find in the end it's way better than anything else? Absolutely. Marriage is hard work. When two sinners get together, oh yeah, we're good at sin. It takes humility to live with each other, to forgive, and a fierce determination to see that marriage grow and flourish. And a marriage, a, a great marriage, takes time, and it's worth it. And then he, he switches gears a little bit, but not really. He starts talking about uh, singles. God's high calling for singles in verses 11, 12. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only for those. Okay, what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard to handle here for a second, but check this out. For there are eunuchs, what? Someone who's been castrated or born without the parts, who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They didn't do any surgery for the sake of the kingdom. They just chose what's called singleness. Or celibacy, okay? That's what he's referring to here. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. He takes the, he, he moves the discussion to another side because if you're, if you're divorced and it was unbiblical and he says, well, if, if you've been divorced, you can't, you can't, unbiblically, you can't remarry unless you reconcile with the person you just divorced, Okay, so your option, and I've done this with the person, as I told them, it says your option is it, it, you're, you're divorced, but you, you remain single. But for what purpose? As punishment? To serve the king. Because remember, marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage was supposed to be about ministry. Marriage was to do a job to represent Jesus in this world together. If you're single, can you do the same thing? Yes. 
Yes, you can. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, kind of gives insight. He goes, hey, I think being single and serving is actually a good idea because you can be freed up to serve more. Some of my best servants, team, team members on my youth staff back in the day, were singles. And one cup, one, they ended up being, getting married to each other in their mid-40s, but they, were, they, they saw these kids as their, their own children, spiritual children, Bill and Terry. And, and, but that's just the Paul saying, look, I think it's, it, it, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 7, hey, this is just my opinion. He's not coming. And this is one of the churches that the Catholic, uh, one of the verses or passages that the Catholic church gets wrong. That's why priests are celibate. They're, they have to be a priest. You have to be celibate. That's not in the Bible. Peter was married. The other disciples, we don't know how many of them, had families. They were married. Marriage is, is called an honorable thing. Matter of fact, elders, which are pastors, elders, one of the qualifications, they are a one-woman man. Their marriage, they can't have multiple marriages. Okay? This whole thing with the Catholic priest, and that's why there's problems <laughs> over the years, because they're commanded something the Bible does not command. Trouble. Singleness is a blessing. I'm just going to boil this down because i got to end this up. It's a calling, but it's a calling to serve. There's freedom from familiar responsibilities. There's freedom in time, in travel, in energy. There's freedom in the resources available. I've talked to singles before, and I, you know, I've said, look, you've got more time than the typical married person, so get your behind serving. And I've had single friends who, they, boy, they had the nicest cars and all this stuff, but they hardly gave to the church. I said, what are you doing? You, God's freed you up and you, you can make lots of money. You've got all these resources. Get it into the church. Get it into missions. God's given you freedom here to serve, not to be selfish. I'm not saying you can't have a nice car and all that stuff, Scott. It's an ongoing joke. <laughs> Did I just, I didn't mean to overstep the bound there. Let's delete that from the recording. But here's, here's the deal. Just like marriage, singleness, both of them, they are calling to serve. They're calling to minister, to glorify God. Marriage is God's best and the only place for sexual relations. Singleness is God's calling to serve. But here's the so what. Are God's ways our ways? Who, or capital who, is your authority? Is God's view of marriage our view? Do you value God's design for marriage? Do you recognize what's happening in our culture with marriage? It's devaluation, it's disintegration, it's destruction, and what it's doing to us. Another so is that, hey, admit it, you want it easy. God, God doesn't say it's going to be easy. Admit that we want it easy, looking for loopholes, even in the church. But will we do the hard thing and fight culture's intrusion into the church? Recognize the destruction that divorce causes. I've already talked about this. And if you are in the middle of thinking of this, of divorce or whatever, pause, pray, practice humility, get in the church involved if you're considering. And then see your marriage or your singleness as ministry. One of the funnest things I have in my life as a pastor is when Renee and I get to do stuff together to serve. And doing the kids stuff right now, it's super fun. Roller skating last week was hilarious. So much fun. You get to do minister together is something super cool. And I know there's, you guys could say that when you have chances to do that. It's really cool. But if you're single, oh my goodness, serve your tail off. You okay? God's word is very different, isn't it, than what our culture says. But, you know, we have to be different. Let, let's let the shepherd lead us. Okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for well, this weekend celebrating freedom in, in this country. But, Lord, we, we want to celebrate the freedom that we have in you through the forgiveness of our sins, through your death and through your resurrection. We have hope. And then in your word, there's freedom. Because when we don't walk in your ways, we, get, we just experience confusion and darkness and hurt. 
And because we have your word, we can know how to have freedom and joy and we get to enjoy those things of following you. So that's, it's not rules to squash us, it's, it's your ways of righteousness for blessing and hope and life. And Lord, for those of us who have made bad decisions, for those who might have had a divorce and there's hurt and all that, God, there's still forgiveness, always forgiveness and always redemption and always hope. And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, wherever we're at, Lord, that we'd recommit ourselves to following you, your ways, your word, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.